Okay, I'm just going to do the, a quick introduction. Uh, my name's Amy and I am the Programme Manager at Newington Green Meeting House and that's the building there. If you haven't uh, been, you might not be local. Um, and welcome, thank you so much for coming along and thank you for your donations too to this event. You might have come before um, to the Women and Work Programme, you might have come to some other programmes that we do at Newington Green Meeting House, um, but this, if this is your kind of first time engaging with what we do here, uh, we work in this building and um, we're based um, on the borders of Hackney and Islington and it's an old church building as you can see um, but what um, I do and the team does um, on the project at the moment is we're really opening it up to kind of tell the stories and histories of the people and the building and a lot of those kind of stories are about people in the past that have really um, championed change, uh, human rights, democracy um, and try to kind of make the world a better place and one of the people that we're kind of most famous for um, being associated with is Mary Wollstonecraft um, who's kind of credited as being um, one of Britain's first feminists um, and because of that we were kind of inspired to put this series together um, talking about women and work and um, sometimes that focuses on kind of women and work historically and sometimes it talks um, about women and work today and campaigns and things like that. So as you will have uh, seen when you kind of booked, it's a really varied program. Um, and we have an ever evolving panel because we'll never be able to kind of cover this topic in like one online event. So this is the fourth online event um, and hopefully we'll probably have one every couple of months. Um, just some, not rules, but just so you know um, how these kind of events work and what's kind of expected of you. You can have your camera on or off, that's absolutely fine. Um, we're going to be recording it and the idea is that we can then put the event on our um, Newington Green Meeting House YouTube channel um, and um, we might also strip the audio and put it as a podcast on Spotify. If you don't want to be in the recording that's absolutely fine. Um, if you just hover over where you can see your name and you left click um, you can press rename and you can just make up a name if you don't want to be on the recording and you can turn your video off. That's absolutely fine. Um, questions and chat are absolutely welcome through the chat function. Um, and we probably won't do questions as we go. We'll leave it to the end. But there is going to be time for questions at the end. But if you want to write it while it's in your head, that's fine. I'll make sure that I come back to you. Um, there is auto transcription at the bottom. If it's not turned on, there is a button that says CC and you can turn it on and it will attempt to transcribe what we're saying. It's not always 100% accurate. If, you, if that's a problem and you want a transcript, please email me. I'll put my email in the chat and I'll send it to you after the event. Um, we advise you to use speaker view, but I will make sure that the speakers are kind of big so you can see everyone. And just so you know that uh, we are radically inclusive at Newton Green Meeting House, so we don't accept any uh, exclusionary language. Um, so this programme, we've had lots of different speakers um, from um, Eleanor, who's a historian of sex work, um, to Sunita, who was talking about her kind of projects campaigning um, for kind of women's equality in India, to um, historical things like the uh, match girl strikers and trying to um, get a memorial to their industrial action. Um, and today we've got a range of different speakers and we're going to start with Veronica and I'm going to ask Veronica to introduce um, herself because she'll do a better job than me and I will stop sharing my screen one second and hand over to Veronica. Hiya, um, 
I am Veronica. Um, thank you so much, Amy, for organising the event. I'm really excited to participate. Um, I've decided to forego slides, and I think this will be quite casual and maybe a bit rambly because my internet can't handle uh, two programmes at once. Um, but yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm, I'm Veronica, I'm based in South London. I've been a nanny for about eight years. Um, I'm, a, I'm a founding member and director of the Nanny Solidarity Network, which is a grassroots mutual aid organization that supports uh, primarily migrant nannies in London. Um, I'm also a founding member of the IWGB Nannies and Au Pairs branch. Um, I'm a member of the Post-Pandemic Childcare Coalition branch, which, uh, which is a campaigning organization for parents and childcare workers. Um, and I also do a bit of research into childcare. So it's all very nanny focused. Um, and usually at events like this, I tend to frame the experiences of paid care workers. So specifically in-home childcare workers, nannies, au pairs, domestic workers. Um, and I do, I do want to give a bit of an overview of the sector today, but what I actually really wanted to talk about with this brief, because it was really exciting, was care work in both its paid and unpaid forms. So mothers and childcare workers and sort of how they overlap and how their experiences are similarly sidelined by mainstream feminism. Um, so often people, when they're talking about uh, paid and unpaid care work, they like to separate the two out from one another. And this is really useful when we're talking about, for instance, campaigning for food workers rights. Mm. Oh no, have I frozen? Am I back? Yeah, you're back now. You're back. <laughs> um, I don't know what I missed there, but yeah, I was mainly saying, um, yeah, I think it's useful to think about work in a sort of broader context, like is work necessarily paid? Because for me, unpaid care labor is completely vital to the functioning of our economy and yet we don't consider it a job. Um, and I think that's a really interesting place for us to start because from there we can begin to think about what organizing strategy looks like both for childcare workers and for parents. Um, so for those of you who don't know much about nannying, I thought it would be useful to give a bit of a rundown of the sector. So firstly, in terms of the workforce size of live out nannies and au pairs, um, uh, Ofsted estimated in March 2020 that there are about 10,000 home childcare providers in the UK. Um, in reality, the number is much higher, though due to the high percentage of undocumented workers um, in the sector, it's really, really hard to pin down. Um, other numbers have suggested, you know, 110,000 nannies and au pairs, while others have put it at um, around 30 to 40,000. So basically, like, we have no idea, right? Like, they're, they're all over the place. Um, anecdotally, most of the women that I've met nannying have been undocumented migrants or they've worked cash in hand. Um, and I guess where the concern lies here is we don't know who's out there and we don't know in what conditions they're working. Often conditions and pay are really poor and those who are if they're living in they're not even entitled to minimum wage they're not entitled to breaks um this can be really dangerous um when we consider the demographic of women doing this work and being put in these positions we can see that harm is disproportionately being inflicted upon marginalized groups so it's women of color it's migrant women working class women often women without secondary or tertiary qualifications like myself um, and often really young women, women, I started when I was 15, but often au pairs can be between 16 and 25. 
Um, unlike nursery workers, nannies don't require qualifications in order to work. And unlike childminders, we're not required to register with Ofsted. And thereby it, it, we're kind of supported by the sector because it, it gives work to many without secure immigration status. Um, we have about 2 million people in the informal economy and like the reality is like they need to work. Um, but beyond migrancy, a lot of the time it's mothers doing this work because it's a job they can bring their kids to. The average cost of childcare in London is something like 30,000 pounds a year. It's ridiculous. And if you're a mother who earns less than that, which I'm sure is a lot of us or a lot of, a lot of mothers, um, childcare is a really vital pathway to employment. Um, so just kind of beyond paid care work for a second, um, with sort of liberal feminism or mainstream feminism, we see this really kind of capitalist idea come up again and again of what work is and what work looks like, right? Work is productive and feminism is about getting women into the workplace. And I guess what I hear in this and maybe what a few, a few of you might hear in this is that the work done in the home, reproductive work, is no, it doesn't count. Um, but as we all know, children can't look after themselves and inevitably what we mean when we say that we want to get women into the workplace or we want to support working women, we're talking about one kind of woman. We're talking often about middle-class women, we're talking about women who have secure immigration status and we're inevitably talking about women who have less money and less status coming in and plugging the gaps and doing that invisible work at home. And for me, I'm just wondering like why we don't consider the home a workplace because it is for hundreds of thousands of women across the UK. So if these women are workers, I guess it draws me to the bigger question of how do we organize them as workers? Because everyone's isolated, everyone's in their houses, paid care workers unions are in their infancy and unfortunately have really limited capacity. Um, with IWGB, we only started in the past sort of year. There's another really great um, uh, UVW childcare workers union that supports nursery workers. That also started in the past year um, and parents can't even unionize because they're workers and consider the job. Um, so there's really not a lot out there that's like supporting um, paid and unpaid care workers. Um, so originally unions were sort of organized on the factory floor and that, that can be supplanted onto a lot of industries. Nursery workers, for instance, they have a collective setting, even gig workers like Uber drivers or Deliveroo, like they have a collective employer in terms of the digital platform that they're using to find work. They have a target to campaign against, but we as informal care workers, we don't have a target unless that target, oh, <laughs> Am I back again? Yeah, you're back. Um, it just cut out for me when you said um, we don't have a target. I knew I cut out a lot in this. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we don't have a target unless that target is the government. And I guess a lot of us are aware that it's really hard to go after the government as your first point of call. Um, so we really need to think laterally about how to organise and where. Um, so an idea that I find really exciting is the idea of parks and playgrounds as collective workspaces and in terms of organizing parents and workers, what it could mean to consider these spaces are factory floors. So for those of you who have kids or have looked after kids, I'm sure you can sort of attest to the fact that library rhyme times and music classes and playgrounds are a total lifeline socially, emotionally, 
often it's a place where you can find more work if you're a paid work a paid childcare worker um, and I had a colleague of mine describe these things as hidden infrastructure and she kind of meant this in the lockdowns that um, for many of us we lost this hidden infrastructure and I guess I think that's really powerful because it takes us paid and unpaid care workers from a place of isolation to a place of collectivization. It gives us a sense of where we could start to build. Um, these spaces and these playgrounds and these classes are our collective workplaces. And I think that sort of by holding that in our mind, perhaps we can begin to allow nannies and au pairs and mothers alike to really start to consider themselves as not alone, but as a part of a wider workforce, a workforce that deserves rights and subsidy and support and training and uh more money basically um so yeah i don't i don't really have a solution or like a massive um point with this talk i i guess it's a, an ongoing conversation but i more wanted to bring this up today as a bit of a seed um that maybe we could like plant together in terms of who we count and who our society counts as women who work um and in terms of the brief i just i felt like that was that was kind of where my brain went. Um, I believe that sort of true, transformative, radical feminism should value reproductive labor as it would any other kind of labor in its paid or unpaid forms. And I believe that we need to sort of hold care work at the center of our discussions around women and work. Um, and we should hold it at the center of union strategy um, and really think about what it means to organize those who perform care. So yeah, thank you very much for listening to me ramble on. Thanks so I'm much, Veronica. Um, and, you know, I don't know, obviously, um, with the audience, if some of that was new to you or if that's something that you've been thinking about. Um, but I think that it's really great. I think it, it was really great and very concisely put, Veronica. So I think that if it was new to you, hopefully that was quite accessible. And where can they go to learn more, Veronica, if this is kind of new to, to this audience? Where can they go to find out a bit more about this? Yeah, um, so um, if you are a childcare worker, you can go to nannysolidaritynetwork.co.uk and we have um, a mutual aid network. We provide emergency support. Um, we have a WhatsApp community. Um, we run a lot of in-person events. If you're not a childcare worker, but maybe you're a parent or you're someone who's affected by childcare or you just want to support, um, you can go to uh, Twitter and look up post-pandemic childcare coalition. Um, and that's a coalition of, of all sorts. And we're all, we're basically campaigning around a, a better deal for childcare. Um, and yeah, um, otherwise you can just um, find me on Twitter. <laughs> I'll, I'll put my Twitter in the thing and I'll, I'll answer any of the questions. That'd be great. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, so we are going over now to uh, Helen. One second. Uh, Helen, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy, for putting this together. It's a really interesting um, set of speakers tonight. So I'm quite yeah, looking forward to hearing everybody else. And that was great, V, really informative and really interesting. Um, I'm Helen. I work at a charity called Hestia, and we um, have a whole host of different services that we provide for, but I work in the Modern Slavery Response Team. I have a presentation, so I'm just going to load that up. Bear with me just one moment. Okay, can you see that? Yeah, great. 
Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what modern slavery is, what it is in London um, as a capital of the UK, where there is um, arguably more forms of exploitation more visible um, than other areas of the UK. And I'm just going to give you a bit of a rundown of what we are and what we do. So Hestia supports victims of modern slavery, uh, women and children who have experienced domestic abuse, young care leavers and older people. Um, and we also support people with um, who are in mental health crisis as well. Um, Hestia has developed an app called Bright Sky, which is linked to the domestic abuse uh, sort of section of Hestia. I don't know if you've heard of it, you can Google it. It's a really great app um, and it's free to download. And this was launched in partnership with the Vodafone Foundation providing support and information to anyone who may be in an abusive relationship or those who are concerned about someone they know. The app is designed to be used by specialist and non-specialist practitioners um, and anyone looking for information about um, personal and online safety, stalking and harassment and sexual consent. And the app itself looks a bit like um, a weather app. It's got like a kind of weather symbol. So it's quite discreet if you have it on your phone um, and you can quite easily kind of hide it as something, um, something different. So uh, last year, as you can see on the screen, uh, Hestia supported nearly 10,000 men, women and children who were uh, identified as potential victims of modern slavery. And I say the word potential and I will come back to that, why that is kind of significant. Um, we support people um, in a crisis with the kind of outcome of life beyond crisis. So I don't know if many people are familiar with the term modern slavery. I think since 2015 and the Modern Slavery Act came in, there's had, bit, you know, there's been a bit more information about this. The government have done quite a lot about this and got it in the public eye and got it in the news. Um, but essentially, modern slavery is decided defined as a recruitment, movement, harboring, receiving of children, women or men through use of force, coercion, abuse of vulnerability, deception or other means of exploitation. Um, so there are three key elements in the criteria of identifying someone who is possibly a victim of modern slavery and human trafficking. And the act um, is basically the recruiting or the transporting or the harboring or the receipt of a person. So it's the physical um, element of a, of a human being. The means is kind of how the trafficker or the perpetrator goes about this. So this is deception, it's coercion, it's force, um, it's threat of violence, um, it's threat of repercussion against family members, that kind of thing. And then the purpose is the intent for exploitation. So this could be for sexual exploitation, it could be forced labour, criminal exploitation, domestic servitude or organ harvesting. Um, in the UK, um, we see a lot of all of the above less so of organ harvesting, but a lot of criminal exploitation, forced labor, domestic servitude um, and sexual exploitation. For children, so that's people under 18, um, although it is important to note that the, the notion of a child is quite different across the globe. So it's quite, there's not really a one size fits all for when a child is possibly a victim of human trafficking or modern slavery, because dependent on the country, kind of dictates what age that child is a child or is an adult. But in the UK, um, if you are a child, then you do not need to um, 
prove or evidence the means because the child is assumed to not have been able to give informed consent um and so it makes proving exploitation um a little bit less tricky than for adults um there are many ways of recognizing potential victims of modern slavery and in london um and i live in south london around south london often nail bars are raided um car washes, um, things that you would see every day, like in construction, um, where it's quite hidden and you wouldn't necessarily know that the people that are working there are not actually working there and that they are being exploited. But I'll just talk you through the um, route of, if you identify somebody, how you can get them into the system to support them and get them access and help from an organization such as Hestia. And Hestia is the organization for London and across South, we are expanding, but across different um, parts of the country, there are different service providers. So Sheffield has Ashiana and there's um, City Hearts. There's different organizations kind of across dif different areas of the UK. So the national referral mechanism is the system in place to support and identify victims of human trafficking. Um, it's often just called the NRM, which is something that you might have heard of, but might not know very much about. Um, if you suspect that a person is a victim of human trafficking, a first responder needs to be the person that makes a referral. And a first responder is um, someone like in the police or in border force or uh, possibly a doctor or um, I know Bernardo's as a charity, they also are recognized as first responders, but you need to gain consent from the adult to refer them. It's really, really important to get consent because for somebody who has experienced exploitation, who has been forced to do whatever they've been exploited for, if they're then put into another system, there's a risk that you're re-traumatizing by not providing the, the option and the consent, which is really, really important. For children, you do not need to get consent because as talked about previously, there's this assumed um, lack of informed decision-making and um, therefore it's in their best interest for someone to step in and support them. When somebody is um, recognized, the first part of the NRM is, a, is called a reasonable grounds decision. And this is quite a low threshold um, in terms of how much evidence you need to provide for justifying um, why you are a victim of trafficking. So you would present yourself um, to the Home Office um, or however you are referred, um, provide some evidence, give a statement, and then often you will be um, kind of enter in the NRM that way. Once you're in the NRM, then you have access to support like Hestia. So I've had people who have come in just before their NRM decision because they've been in high crisis and have needed support immediately. And it's looking extremely likely that they will get their reasonable grounds decision. And then you, Hestia supports all of the people that we, um, all the clients that we are advocating for right up until the very end. Once they've got a reasonable grounds decision, which is um, positive, which means they've they've been recognized. Then there's this reflection and recovery period, which is a minimum of 45 days. In reality, it takes much longer. So that's an important part of our role, kind of measuring expectations and managing how the people that we're supporting um, are waiting for a decision and how long that might be. Um, it's impossible to know how long it will take because it seems like 
there's not necessarily uh, a pattern for kind of what your uh, exploitation was or where you've been trafficked from if you're not a UK national. So it, it's really quite varied. At that point, I might submit further evidence, like a support letter, which I've done for several people I've supported, which outlines the kind of recovery journey we've been supporting them on, outlines the practical support that we give them, which I'll come to in a moment, um, and how and why they are, they require support in the future after they've had their positive conclusive grounds decision if they get there. So the conclusive grounds decision often comes um, with a lot more weight attached to it. So you might have doctor's letters or if you've had um, someone that you've been supporting who's having counselling, you might have a counsellor write a support letter to kind of also um, add weight to their um, to their case. Once they've had that, they um, can get follow on support if needed. And that's something I'm going to talk about a bit today with um, employability as the focus, because that's incredibly important for people post recovery to be able to regain some control of their life, to support themselves, to develop skills and to integrate into the community that they have settled in, which may or may not be where they have grown up or where they have lived for a long time. So the support that we offer at Hestia, which is all aimed at recovery and rehabilitation and all delivered in a trauma informed way, is based on the ECAT entitlements, which is the Council of European Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking and Human Beings. And you can see why we call it ECAT, because that's very long. <laughs> um, so one of the most important things that we support people with is um, safe and secure accommodation. So we may have clients who are fleeing um, incredibly precarious and dangerous housing situations. So we can support with, um, if they have got recourse to public funds, we can support with getting local authority housing. We can support with getting into hostels or shelters. Um, and we do have some safe houses also. We do very detailed initial needs based assessments where we run, run through all the possible risks in their life and also gauge what kind of support they need. Um, so this may be if they do not speak English and it's really vital for them to be able to advocate for themselves in the future. Learning English is a really important um, part of that. They're entitled to emergency medical treatment um, and material assistance and that might be things like clothing. Um, or if they haven't got a mobile phone or they haven't got any way of contacting um, us or family, we can help um, support with that. Subsistence, so there's a weekly um, payment that we are able to provide for clients, um, which is um, in addition to um, kind of housing and making sure they're able to get a few things for themselves and again, develop some agency again. Uh, a complaint service, it's really important that um, they feel able to ask for more help or complain if they're not happy with the kind of support they're receiving. Translation and interpreting, um, I have, currently I have a caseload of 16 people and approximately half of those people that I work with speak English, either as a native language or as a additional or second language. Um, and it's really great when you have a client who comes in who's very, very shy and not confident speaking in English with you. Um, and then as time progresses, you can have these really great conversations and they pick up um, humor based on kind of where they're living and who they're living with, which is really nice to see them kind of making friends and getting to know people. 
Um, signposting and information, I'm going to kind of talk a bit more about that in a moment. Um, the advocacy for specialist services is really, really important. So we um, we advocate strongly for all of our clients who require it to have um, counselling and psychological support because um, if it's delivered at the right time when the client is ready, it can be really transformative um, and allow them a safe space to talk about their feelings with a professional. Sometimes they'll want to talk to us. So I have clients who want to talk to me sometimes um, and that is okay. And that is part of my role, but it's also not my place to be able to guide them through this process because they need um, a trained professional to be able to do that. If they are um, going to take the criminal proceedings against their traffickers, we can support with that. So I actually know of clients who are, um, yeah, who are pressing charges, which is a very traumatic thing in itself um, and extremely courageous that they feel able to do that. So they require quite a lot of support during that process. And then if um, anybody has children, then we support them to get access to school, uh, school children uh, education. So the programs I'm going to talk about today are, as I briefly said, all about employability, as the theme of this evening is. Um, it's getting women back into work and it's getting women um, to a point where they feel confident when they have got a status or when they are able to work um, and have the right to work from the home office, that they are able to use these skills in a way that is going to build up their future. So there are several programs I'm going to talk about today. Um, each I have heard really wonderful things about and um, two I have personally had um, clients work with, which I know has been such an incredible experience for them and has set them up for careers that they want to go down now, which is really great. And one of them wants to work at a bakery and set up her own bakery and I can't wait to eat all the cake. Sorry, I had to say there. So the Luminary Bakery um, is the women's employability and training program for people um, who are aiming to get into grounded employment. So the bakery is a social enterprise around training employment and community to some of the most disadvantaged women in London. The women referred to the bakery have been classified as experienced multiple disadvantages, including gender-based violence, domestic abuse, um, sexual exploitation, trafficking, and honor-based violence. The team at the, at the bakery work holistically with women, offering a safe space for training, trauma-informed support as they overcome barriers from lack of opportunity, preparation for employment, and guidance in building towards a positive future. And um, the team at Luminary are absolutely fantastic. I really can't sing their praises high enough. The partnership working that we have done with them, uh, the client that I have that I know is working with them has is on stage three now of the process. And there are three phases to the support process. Um, it's delivered in a really wonderful way that allows the women to make friends and access counseling and um, develop really key skills for working in the future. The Horizon Summer School is um, another one that I am really familiar with. Um, and this brings together students and teachers um, to learn in quite an interesting and kind of interactive environment. The summer school is an opportunity for participants to learn and connect with other people and grow skills um, such as English and IT, 
um, employability and volunteering skills, um, living in a new culture, which is a really important one for a lot of the women who have been trafficked to the UK, getting used to UK culture um, can be quite a barrier, particularly with um, things like food. If you are living in a neighborhood that doesn't have food or shops that cater for the food that you're used to eating, it can be quite a challenge to kind of work through that. Um, and the Horizon Summer School also does kind of creative arts um, and life skills um, workshops. The uh, RAVE program with the Cherry Tree Foundation um, is uh, a really good one actually looking at construction, which I know is something I mentioned earlier. Um, and this supports people to learn the construction trade, um, develop skills and um, complete the CC CSCS course, which is a certified um, construction education course, which provides candidates with um, really good opportunities for working within construction in the future. The STAR program um, is also for victims, specifically for victims of human trafficking and modern slavery. Um, this project started in November last year, helping survivors to overcome barriers to employment by developing skills training and personalized education support and they work also in partnership with other survivor care organizations who can refer people to the project um, and up to 30 people can be provided with support during this project. Um, this is focusing on digital skills, employment skills and life skills um, and they offer one-to-one -one, um, support also. Um, ELAT, sorry, I'm going to rattle through this. I'm nearly there. <laughs> ELAT is a really great organization that works um, primarily with um, refugees, women from a black and minority ethnic background, um, and works specifically in creating CVs, job searches, um, introducing people to the different opportunities that are available, um, doing op applications and practicing for interviews, because many, many people, if they've never had a formal job interview, is quite an intimidating thing to go through. So having that coaching and having that support readily available is, um, yeah, really important for their, their future career. And lastly, RISE is, um, it stands for the Refugees in Sustainable Employment. And this is um, a service specifically designated for refugees in the UK. It's funded by the Big Lottery um, and the European Social Fund through Building Better Opportunities Programme. This is led by a social enterprise called Dranasi, um, which has been developed in collaboration with a number of other partnerships and refugee communities. Um, and they provide one-to-one -one support to assist and identify and overcome barriers to employment. Um, again, providing kind of practical skills as well as um, kind of confidence building and allowing people to kind of make friends and get to know people in their community. And I had a, a client who attended the Horizon Summer School and she went to the whole program and graduated quite recently. Um, and I just wanted to read out this testimonial from her because I think it really illustrates the power that this has had on her and the impact that she has felt during this um, summer program. So she said, I wasn't sure what to expect. I wanted to change and I wanted to meet other people, different people. I wanted to share ideas and experiences. Sometimes people have come with different lives and you learn about their background. I made new friends and I felt more confident. 
I was really shy in the beginning, but the summer school helped me to be more friendly and less shy. I learned patience from the teachers and you are never too old to learn this. The teachers dedicated their time to us. They cooked with us. They showed us how to make quick and nutritious meals. They talked to us about how to be healthy and cut down sugars and oils. And I still do this now. I love the creative writing and this helped me a lot. Sometimes I write down, write something down and I think it's not important, but I've come to realize every little thing that you put on paper is important. We were encouraged to keep writing and I feel that I can explain myself on paper now. I've learned new ways to develop confidence and I still, and I can do certain things that I couldn't do before. I create a group chat and we still use it. Every time I see messages, I laugh and I, we, all, we are all still in touch and talk. I can't see my text because of the, they say they miss the summer school. They all say that they wish the school didn't end and we're hoping for something different in the future. And we all want to come together again. And at the summer school graduation, they had all made these absolutely beautiful outfits and did a fashion parade and talked about the skills they have learned and the English skills that they have learned and knowing how to write a CV and knowing how to look at the job market. Um, and I wish I could capture that feeling in a bottle and just give it out to people because it was so incredible to see a group of women who I'd met in the very beginning who, wouldn't even speak to each other. They were all so nervous and all so shy and not sure who they could approach. And at the end, all laughing and keeping in touch and going out for each other's birthdays. Um, yeah, it was really quite a special, um, a special program. And that's, yeah, that's me. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Helen. And, and, you know, for me, a lot of that information was really new. And I feel like it's information that we should probably all know in case we see any kind of elements of that. So I think that's great to learn more about what Hestia does but, and the amazing work, but also really important, I think, for us to know these kind of things so we can see signs and we know where to go. Um, I'm going to pass on to Susan now, who's um, joining us. Susan, I'll hand over to you. Thanks, thanks very much, Amy. And can I say thanks for inviting me in again? I hope people can hear me clearly. I came back from my summer break with a very bad cold, so it's affecting my voice. Uh, as Amy said, I'm Susan Fajano Thomas. I'm a local counselor here in Stoke Newton. I've been um, a political activist in Hackney now for almost 30 years. And I'm the cabinet member responsible for community safety and enforcement that includes policing, prevention of crime, and ASB, um, what Ellen has been talking about, modern day slavery, say crime, that is uh, also under my responsibility in the council, then licensing policy, trading standard, borrow resilience, done quite a lot of work around the COVID response, as well as emergency planning for, for Hackney. And just want to share a bit of my uh, experience as a local politician, but importantly, just to have uh, a sort of reflection on the picture of women participation in politics uh, uh, globally. Uh, as a local politician, I would like to encourage women to participate in politics. 
it is challenging but very rewarding as a local councillor apart from making policies we support local residents from helping a family on the estate with damp issues in their flat to supporting an elderly person to sort out their social care and ensuring that our streets are well lit at night, services are delivered, beans are uh, 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 emptied and all of that. So it is a, it is a rewarding role. And but in terms of the global outlook of women in politics, as I think uh, many for many reasons some women uh, don't really want to be take part in 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 politics as well as there are different barriers uh, uh, to women's involvement in in politics or uh, it is uh, it is good to be an activist sometimes i don't actually uh, introduce myself as a politician i see myself as an advocate a campaigner because from an early age i've always been one of those people that where there is a campaign i'm there with my placard through my father's influence and that's has continued till this day but i believe uh, active participation of women in politics is not just a goal in itself, but central to building and sustaining democracies. The equal presence of women, their leadership and their perspective in parliaments or various council chambers are essential to greater responsiveness to citizen needs. And no progress has certainly been achieved in the last uh, or, or 20 years or the proportion across the global women representation, the proportion has increased from 13% back in, in 2000 to uh, 25% uh, in 2020. Some regions have experienced greater gains, such as Africa, where the number of women uh, legislators increased from about 11% to 24%. Uh, the Arab states who have witnessed a significant increase from almost uh, 3%. This like uh, of women participation in politics were not were, when does not did not exist until 20 years ago. But in the last 20 years, things are moving up. And here in in the UK, in the 2019 general election. Uh, women, uh, we have um, 220 women elected, making up 34% of the House of Commons in, in the UK. This is an increase from 32% from previous, um, uh, uh, previous election. But I just want to say, but despite these gains, women still really hold the leadership roles. What I meant by that is uh, the president, the prime minister, out of um, almost uh, 193 nations across the world, we only have 20 of them being led by women, which is just uh, uh, less than a quarter. So it is important uh, that women uh, representation uh, or we all work as women 
to uh, uh, ensure that we are encouraging each other to be part of um, uh, uh, to be to be part to take part in politics. Uh, um, it's also indicative of the power dynamics within society. Still, some may ask why it matters if there are more female legislators or political leaders. Why do we need more women involvement in all aspects of the political process? Yes, it is important. And I'll just put it simply, a matter because women's representative is necessary to ensure that democracy functions as effectively as possible. Women are not a minority when it comes to population. They are half of the world's population. But for political institutions to be democratically legitimate and responsive to all citizens, they must be inclusive of the plurality of groups that exist within that population. So this requires greater representation of women in national parliaments and a broader diversity. People's interests and priorities often shape uh, by their respective social, economic, and ethnic differences. What you find is uh, female legislators belonging to various backgrounds can therefore bring a wide diversity of issues to be able uh, uh, on the table for consideration and propose solutions accordingly. Uh, like I said, I've been an activist and a socio-political campaigner for 30 years. Many people, if you live in Hackney locally, uh, last year, uh, um, the council adopted the Black Lives uh, Life Matter motion, which I was proud to be one of the two councillors who brought that motion to the, uh, to the council. Last Saturday, I was out with uh, 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 many people from Hackney at the Museum of the Home uh, 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 campaigning as part of a UNESCO uh, uh, a Remembrance Day for the abolition of transatlantic trade, saying to the trustees of the Museum of the Home that the Jeffrey, Robert Jeffrey uh, 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 statue in the museum must fall. We're not saying uh, with that campaign, let to just clear that we're not saying to eradicate history. What we are saying, uh, such a uh, statue does not need to take uh, a prominent position in a place where our young people visit quite often. So that is such, that that is the sort of things that happened. Again, uh, Black Lives Matters uh, 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 went viral around the world last year, but actually Black Lives Matters uh, 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 campaigning and activism started, we started that in, in the UK back in 2016. So it is um, quite a lot of things have been uh, on uh, campaigning, quite a lot of things have seen the light of the day through the campaigning of the organization before everybody uh, 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 knew about Black Lives Matters movement uh, or last year. Um, just I'm being conscious of the time. 
one of the reasons for the for for why it is important for women to be in politics is like I mentioned earlier on, in the last uh, ten years, uh, uh, one one hundred thirty one countries have passed two hundred and seventy four legal reforms in support of gender equality. This includes laws towards eliminating violence against women, child care, and universal health care. Research indicate that these achievements have coincided with an increasing number of female legislators around the world. So that is why we are saying, why I'm not saying, I'm not accusing men politicians that they don't bring uh, 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 female issues on the table. But we find what we find is majority of women in politics will bring issues uh, or affecting women's rights, women issues on the table when it comes to politics. So to conclude, why do women, why do we need women in politics? Uh, or I would say firstly, it's a matter of equity and human rights, both of which are cornerstone of democracy. And uh, secondly, broad representation of women in politics, in parliament, has an enormous impact on what issues are raised and how policies are shaped, like I've mentioned in terms of various uh, policies in the last 10 years around women issues. And the last thing, it creates room to reform and revise uh, discriminatory laws against girls and women that have happened in the past. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be happy to take any questions when the time comes. Thank you so much, Susan. And I think that residents in your area are so lucky to have a local politician who's so informed, not just in terms of local, but you know, national and global matters too. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, and you know, in the in the theme of kind of um being inspired by mary wollstonecraft i feel like if mary wollstonecraft was here today she would be saying the same thing so thank you for sharing that um i am going to speak next so if you just give me one second um and i never usually speak at these things so this is quite odd for me usually i just introduce everyone else but um I'm going to, uh, for the next 10 minutes, just talk to you about uh, my research, which is on um, working class women's voices in Peckham, which is where I live. Um, and so I've been uh, doing this research on the Peckham Publishing Project. Um, so the Peckham Publishing Project was one group in the 70s and 80s, but um, they actually were part of a bit much wider organization called the Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers. Um, and as you can see in the picture, they helped publish and supported community publishing on a national scale and eventually international um, from kind of queer writing up north to uh, mums writing groups to experiences of migration. They are really wide ranging under the banner of working class, which I think that you know, when we talk about working class today, it's kind of intentionally happened that we, we think about certain types of people, uh, but actually, um, you know, this kind of uh, kind of archive shows that actually that kind of working class banner has always been diverse. Um, 
And it really appealed to me as someone from a working class background that the way that they defined working class was really wide. And they said it was a working class identity without guarantees, which I quite like, because when you talk about class with people, we all have very difficult relationships with class. You know, well, maybe my dad did this, but now I live here. And well, I went to university. Can I be working class anymore? You know, these kind of conversations. So I think it's it was refreshing to, to see something that had a, a wide range of that so uh, they don't exist anymore unfortunately um and peckham still to this day doesn't have a bookshop uh, there's many m many in kind of east dulwich way but not in peckham itself um and so the idea was similar to centerprise in hackney if you're local you might um know about uh, centerprise the idea was there's no bookshop and we need a bookshop and we need a bookshop that is filled with materials that's written by our community and for our local community um, and so people came together and as you can see um the works also was it was under a working class banner but it was also anti-racist anti-sexist and anti-fascist so um you know it blows my mind now living in peckham that um you know something like this existed that doesn't exist today existed 40 years ago uh you know and i would have loved to have really been part of it um but the peckham publishing project also had a lot of exclusively women's writing groups so um, I'm going to kind of talk about that because it's the topic, but uh, the kind of women's writing um, falls under these topics on the left hand side. So education is a really big one. And that's because a lot of the women um, were part of this big national literacy drive um, to um, drive up adult literacy and numeracy in that period too. So a lot of these women that were writing had only learned to read and write very recently and then were using these skills to make this material and publish it collectively um, they spoke about work they spoke about what a kind of woman's role is or what they would like that to be um, gender inequality experience at home and at work and in society um, more broadly and childcare was a big theme too um, I'm going to read this poem, which is the start of one of the biggest kind of collections of women's writing, which is, as you can see, addressed directly to the Prime Minister of the time. Uh, Dear Maggie, we are women just a bit like you. In Peckham, we are fighting for the right to have a job. You want the, We want the chances you had that got you to the top. We want more education and nurseries for our kids. So don't cut back our training. Don't take away our work. Oh, one second. I just got to move this out of the way. Don't make the poor pay even more while the rich get rich, rich, rich. We don't want bombs and warships. We don't want private schools, but we need our hospitals badly. And don't think that we're fools because now we're going to tell you that we'll fight you all the way and we'll send you back to housework if you take our rights away. And obviously this is quite a difficult time for working class people generally, you know, in this period. But I think that what this kind of gendered um, understanding of it is really hard. This is the time of the Equal Pay Act just afterwards, which was supposed to be this time, which was going to make working lives for women a lot easier. And actually what that did was it meant that employers had to pay the same rate to men and women. But what they did then is just created jobs that men didn't have so that they would, you know, part-time jobs that weren't attractive to men so that women would take these part-time jobs because of childcare commitments um, a lot of the time and they didn't then have to pay them the same because there wasn't a, comp um, a man competitor. Um, so I think a lot of these, um, a lot of these writings are kind of women 
really disillusioned with the with the government and and it being headed by margaret thatcher and her at the time talking a lot about um you know well she's she's really encouraging women to work and the kind of work environment and you know um reforms and that kind of thing um and as you can see, a lot of the material, like images here, there's a lot of photography. Uh, these women are dinner ladies. In fact, my first um, publication that I ever found um, by the Peck Publishing Project was called Two Dinner Ladies. And I won't read you it because I cry every time I read it. And it's these two dinner ladies that um, came to an adult literacy class and learned to read and write together and wrote about their experience. And uh, it's just basic sentences. And it's kind of, uh, we give children food. Some children are nice, some children are horrible. It's quite rude. It then says like some children are fat <laughs> and some children are, are are thin and some and it kind of goes through basic sentences and then the, the end it just says, but we love them all. <laughs> and, and I was hooked as soon as I read that one. Um, so um, yeah, as I said, there's quite a lot of kind of material in there that talks about kind of women's work and what's going on in the workplace too, to kind of spread that message. And there's a lot of in the content stories of experiences of migration as a woman and moving here. So um, Peckham now has quite a big uh, like Nigerian population and these kind of um, populations that were uh, these migrant populations in the kind of 70s and 80s. It's kind of changed the makeup of Peckham now. Um, but at the time it was big Vietnamese communities, big Irish communities and big West Indian communities. Um, so uh, Muriel here talks about her experience of her husband coming from Jamaica, setting up a house and then her moving across um, and finding it hard to work and um, finding it hard to kind of fit in. And um, it snows and she's never seen snow before and she's not quite sure what to do. And she asks her husband, what, what do I do when it snows? And he says that um, you have to step in the footsteps other people have made and kind of make your way, which is a really kind of poetic way of telling Muriel that she's going to have to assimilate in this kind of country. Um, other experiences um, are of women and trade unions and especially women of colour and trade unions, you know, and these kind of histories are histories we, we don't hear about enough at all. Um, but you might have heard of the Grunwick strike in the 70s, which was uh, South Asian women um, striking at a printing, photography printing factory. And some of the women in the Peckham Publishing Project were involved um, with the Chicks strike, which was a sweet factory and, the, and they striked. Um, and there's a quote here from Paul Gilroy, who who talks about kind of class and how we kind of need to work widen class to um, to talk about kind of gendered experiences, but but also kind of racism and how that, you know, we can talk about class, but it's not a homogenous group of people and many different people are going to have different experiences, it's going to mean different things. Um, so if we're going to be intersectional, then we do really need to take that into account, how other people experience this. and. Um, you know, uh, these women and the Grunwick strike women, you know, did not have good experiences with trade unions at the time. Um, and so there's quite a lot of, you know, quite politically active women that are writing about their experiences so that they can then share that with others. Um, and there's also kind of, you know, harrowing accounts of housing and things like this, like unsuitable housing. So Hyacinth um, moves to the UK um experiences the you know racism from landlords and unfortunately is her uh, housing becomes so unsuitable that actually a tenant ends up murdering her son and and she writes about this experience in the book and i think as a 
historian that um, one of the most amazing kind of parts of the um, archives is these documented working days of women, which is a really fascinating um, kind of um, archival piece to be able to see documented in their own words, the experiences of women and exactly what their work was like and what their conditions were like. And a lot of the, especially mothers in the writing groups were really keen on getting representation in children's books too. So they wrote books that they could then use with their children and then other children locally, which would show people of colour um, performing jobs like dentists, um, teachers and things like this and showcasing kind of, you know, like the various different traditions and religions and customs that were available in the area to make it representative. And then they would go and work with schools and kind of, Basically, you know, conversations we're having now about like decolonizing school curriculums and libraries, they were doing it on a very hyper local level in the 70s and in the 80s. And it wasn't just writing, they would do workshops, they would do children's fairs, they would do calendars like this calendar here to raise money and publish poetry and things like that. Uh, so just to kind of finish off, um, this is a list of kind of uh, the, the kind of context of the time that made this happen. And as you kind of skim through it, you'll think, oh, that sounds a lot like today. Um, and my kind of positive spin on this is that, you know, through recent, uh, through the pandemic, you know, we've kind of relied on mutual aid and we've had to kind of come together and, and sometimes, you know, rely on each other as opposed to kind of sometimes bigger structures and organizations and things and i think that you know there's value in doing both of those things but something like small like the peckham publishing project really kind of showed me the value in kind of coming together and doing that and i think unfortunately the political climate is very similar to the political climate that that made that happen um and so in that vein um at Newington Green Meeting House in the, in the capacity that I have there, we, we kind of launched a similar project, which is inspired by the Peckham Publishing Project. So if anyone would like to contribute, that would be amazing. Uh, we published this quarterly enzyme where um, anyone can submit their writing on particular themes. Uh, the next one is uh, Spaces and Places, and that will be published in mid-September. And then we'll be going again in the new year. And that's inspired by this way of working and if you're in Peckham and you want to see where the Peckham publishing project was it's in this building on Peckham High Street it's uh, now a lovely fabric shop and they looked after the building wonderfully um, and um, yes I think I'll finish there um, so I'm going to hand over now lastly to um, Cherylia and then we'll have some time for questions Hi, thank you very much I must say it's been Absolutely amazing listening to all the speakers tonight. It's been um, absolutely fascinating taking a, a trip through the world of work, woman and history. Um, and I'm, I'm really impressed to be here tonight because I'm talking a little bit about um, women in leadership. Um, and I come to this through being a human resources business partner for many, many years. Um, I work as a contractor, I run my own business as well, um, and I'm certified as a startup member, coach and consultant, so wearing a lot of hats in different ways, um, but the key theme about this is about raising women um, to their next level, whether it be in their career or their business. Um, and it was really interesting to note, you know, that sort of in the days of Mary Wollstonecraft, um, you know, sort of 
progression in life was through marriage more than anything else. And, you know, really lucky today that times have changed so much that as women, we can have careers and we can have our own businesses. But it's been a very slow and a very painful change. And it's taken a lot of women, um, you know, a lot of time to get to the top and to break those stereotypes. And especially the two key problems that women in leadership are facing are through pay and opportunity inequality. Um, so to give sort of a little bit of a, a, an example of that, um, in 1970, um, the UK started doing surveys on the gender pay gap. And back in 1970, um, the difference between a woman and a man's pay was 47 0.6%. So literally in 1970, a woman was earning practically half of what a man was. Um, this in turn led to some legislation um, and the Equality um, and Employment Rights Act and all of these were changed. And 46 years later, that's four, six years later, in 2016, that gap had narrowed to 16.8%. So, yay, you know, we've, we made a lot of progress in a very, very slow amount of time. Um, roll on to 2021, um, and that pay gap is now 18.2%. So we're moving a little bit away from that ideal again. And so it's time, you know, for us to step up um, and to start doing things sort of slightly differently. And um, one of the key things that we can do differently is recognise as women the power we have in terms of businesses. Um, you know, at the, you know, in 2021, our options are still marry, you know, get married and progress through life. Um, but we also have that choice of being employed or self-employed. Um, and, um, <laughs> you know, that, that's, those, are, uh, that, those are options that we can really take and grow from. Um, and a, a woman, what we've noticed, because I run, um, I'm the area, uh, London lead for the Federation of Small Businesses, Women in Enterprise. So I get to work a lot with, you know, sort of top level women in business and seeing, you know, what happens there. Um, and a woman in a leadership role will tend to be more collaborative and will tend to reach down and bring the woman below her up and forward as well so that we all progress in together. Um, and in doing so, this is sort of not really been as well documented as the last sort of 50 odd years in the, in the working world has. So we don't have a lot of data on that. Um, pay and opportunity gap for women in business. But that is beginning to change through organisations like the Federation of Small Business doing surveys, going out and talking to people. Um, but there is power behind a woman in business because um, we need to be taken more seriously. And in a world where they, which is data driven, we need to be able to show that data. So there's just a few things on a positive note I want to share um, and then sort of move into some things that we are working on and give you a couple of case studies around women in business. So just some nice stats here that a woman owned, uh, and these are based on um, the business and innovation skills in the Office uh, for National Statistics, um, which was data taken between 2012 and 2015. Um, in that time period, a woman-owned businesses contributed £105 billion to the gross value add of the UK economy. 
Um, and that is an increase of 40% from 2012 to 2015. So that is, you know, a massive pat on the back and a massive leap forward for us. Um, sort of in the context of the GVA, women-owned businesses are increasing in importance and they now represent 6.3% of GV GVA, which again was up from the 2012 stats of 5.1%. Um, the average GVA per head contributed by women-owned businesses has increased to 36k um, and you know, although at that point there was a slight decline from 81 to 79 percent, um, it is sort of overall growing that the overall trend is moving upwards. Um, a nice thing about as well, there's, there's a lot more stats we can go into. And if anybody's interested in those, I can share those later, but I'm not going to do death by statistical <laughs> um, analysis here. Um just um, as well, um, there's an increase in employment um, of uh, women. Uh, so employment in women-owned businesses has increased by 26% to 2.9 million. So that's 2.9 million people getting jobs from women-owned businesses, which I think is phenomenal and something we need to keep growing with. Um, uh, Women-led businesses also evidence an increase in in employment and now represent 12.55% of the total private sector employment, which is up 2% from the 2012 stat. Um, and of particular note is the significant provision of employment. Women-owned and women-led businesses now provide a total of 23.85% of private sector employment. And I think those are fa fantastic statistics and just show the year-on-year -year growth about that. And it shows just how rewarding, you know, being a woman leader in business can be. Um, but it's also, um, you know, it's, it's also a little bit tough because there's things that are not sort of going well. Um, sort of if we look on a global scale, the UK at the minute is um, in position number five of, of the top 20 um, uh, countries around the world that support women in enterprise and support women-led enterprise. And you think number five is great. It is great. Um, but when the USA and Canada are ahead of us um, in those things, you know, we want to push forward. We're, not, we're still not doing enough. Um, and some of the key barriers that women are facing um, sort of in leadership um, positions across there is that um, there isn't a um, framework for women's enterprise in place. And, one, and what is in place? is not strong enough. Um, women don't have the same level of access to finance that men do. Um, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have sufficient data collection to sort of put this into a, a way that the government and the people in power can actually start taking us seriously. Um, women are also not aware of the support that is out there. So although we are number five in the world and we've got somewhere to go, you know, we still have to do a lot of awareness raising around there because a lot of women in business are mums. They are working between uh, childcare provisions and, you know, sort of wearing a number of hats. Um, so support is desperately needed out there. Um, another key area that needs to be improved is diversity in the procurement process because there is still that bias that's sitting there. It's not acceptable. It's not right. And these need to change. Um, there also needs to be higher visibility of role models for um, women in enterprise and women-led business 
businesses to grow further. Um, we all know what can happen if you've got a good mentor. It just takes you from here to here, you know, in, in amazing time. And also, one of the things that was mentioned by um, one of the, the earlier speakers, um, and it's quite good to hear that this is getting traction in other areas as well, is around equalizing maternity pay because women in business and especially those who are sole traders or who are self-employed do not often qualify for statutory maternity pay. So, you know, it's just one of these things that you just think, what? <laughs> you know, th these are a few things that, you know, sort of that need to change. Um, and just sort of two very quick um, case studies, because I can't remember how much time I've got, <laughs> sort of, um, is, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of barriers. I've mentioned some of these as well. Um, and one of these is uh, um, that I'm going to share with you is particularly close to heart, to my heart. It is a friend of mine. Um, she's a woman of colour, much younger than you would expect. Um, she came into um, a, an unexpected windfall and decided to open up her own business um, in a very male-dominated area. Um, and within three years, she had literally been battered out of business by the men in the area. And, um, you know, not all men are like this. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, don't want to bash all men, but it was very much that old boys network network. Um, and she was not taken seriously and, of course, eventually has lost her business. Um, and, you know, obviously had she and the key things that came out of that learning for her was her age and her skin colour, unfortunately. And this is something that all women in business, whether you are um, in a career or in self-employed or wherever you are, if you are in a position of leadership, these are the things we need to be looking at. These are the things we need to be addressing and really pushing to reduce that gap. Um, another key um, case study just before I go, um, which I felt thought was really good and comes from the, the all-party government paper. So I'm not sure, Susan, if you're aware of this, um, but there was a great paper written and put forward to government, you know, sort of pushing the need um, for everything that I've mentioned, for data, for mentoring, for uh, 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 proper maternity pay um, infrastructure and all these things that I've mentioned. Um, and one of the case studies that came from that paper um, was a company called Alvi um, and a lady called Tanya Bole, who was the co-founder. And her and her partner, her business partner, went to a venture capitalist to ask, um, you know, to put forward the case for um, funding um, for, do, for women doing pelvic floor exercises and um, work around that because um, that's one of the key things all women suffer for with um, at some point in life and they were they were turned away because they were told that their area of business was too niche um, now given given the amount of women in the world given the amount of you know um, at least two in three women will experience some form of pelvic floor issues that is a massive market by any business sense and to be you know to be turned away um, they then um, went on to sort of look for other avenues of funding um, and by 2017 they had secured their startup funding of around about six million dollars um, through other other venues avenues of funding working much harder um, they then got a series a round um, by the european bc for their their funding um, 
uh, to sort of go ahead with their, their pelvic floor business. Um, and within six months of receiving this money and starting up in business, they turned a profit um, of double-figure millions um, um, around the world and are now running an incredibly successful business that um, their products are sold in 59 countries around the world at the moment. And that is the power of women that we have. That is the power of leadership. And that is what coming together, collaborating and doing what we do best, which is working together and standing on the shoulders of giants um, really does for all of us. So I just thought I'd uh, share that. Um, and of course, you know, if anybody would, you know, sort of like to know a little bit more and get in touch and talk about, you know, those kinds of things, um, you know, and just sort of get the point across of why support and mentoring is so important for women in work and in business, um, do get in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sherylia, for that. I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating. It's it's inspiring, and then in some some moments, it's also like really frustrating. And I, I find that when we have these kind of conversations, actually, I'm I'm usually left overwhelmed, and and uh, sometimes like you know really inspired and uplifted, and then also sometimes just kind of reminded of the weight of like all of this, and that you just kind of live through it and don't often kind of reflect on it. Um, We've got some time for questions now, 10 minutes left for questions. And I know, Veronica, you had a question that you put in the chat for Susan, um, which was um, asking Susan about how, if someone wanted to get involved as a kind of woman in, in politics, local or kind of nationally, where can they go to to kind of start that journey? Well, thanks very much, Amy, and thanks, Veronica, for that question. I think uh, where to start from, Veronica, I hope you vote in elections. I think that, that is, that's where to start from. Um, uh, it's always very good to join a political party, but you don't have to join a political party to be active in politics. You can do respond to consultation, you can get involved in, in, in petition on various platforms like the 38 degrees online. You can, but importantly, if you are looking to uh, take uh, or stand for election, the advice would be to join uh, a political party. And if you, when you join a political party, you have people who can hold your hands in terms of what to do, how to go into uh, uh, becoming a candidate for election. As you know, there are, uh, I would say in, in, uh, in this country today, there are three major political parties and other uh, um, smaller uh, uh, um, political parties. Mo majority of them, they do have a website I'm a proud labor uh, counselor. And locally in Hackney, we got the labor, Hackney labor website. Most of the political parties, we have similar things, I believe. If you go on there, you'll be able to find how to join or how to become active, how to become part of them. Um, by doing that, you start your journey into becoming uh, uh, an active uh, uh, becoming active in politics. 
So that is that that's what I will say. Also, join protest, join various movement. What we are doing, the the Newton Green Meeting House, they become uh, uh, a, a sort of local movement with various, you can see the presentation with Amy. Those are things that are very important. That is more than politics. So that is what I would say. Thanks very much. Thanks, Susan. Uh, does anyone, if you've got any questions, you can write them in the chat and we can read them out or you can unmute yourself and, and ask speakers yourself. But maybe some of the speakers have other questions for some for some other speakers too. I had a, I had a question for you, Amy. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I'm just asking all the questions. Um, but it's just because I found everyone so interesting. Um, it was so amazing to hear about um, some of the written resources and the books created um, in Peckham and I was wondering like is there a way to access them now because like some of them I'd love to read and I don't obviously like the library isn't around anymore but like is there an online resource or something that we could take a look at them? Yeah, that's a good um, question. Uh, they, so they are deposited at the Trade Union Congress Library, which is part of London Metropolitan Archives. Um, and Jeff Howarth, who's the librarian there, is very friendly. So if you ever wanted to like go and see any of them, um, then he can show you them. But also, if you Google um, the um, Federation of Worker Writers and Community Publishers. Some of them are digitized online and, you know, um, not all of them, but then you can find them and they'll just be PDFs that you can have. Um, they're kind of a not as well known as they should be really. And um, because of that, they're kind of spread everywhere. There is some at the Bishopsgate Institute too, um, which is near Liverpool Street, if, uh, if you've never been there before. Um, and then you kind of find them also at like anarchist bookshops every now and then. So there's a really good anarchist bookshop in Walworth on Walworth Road, 56A Info Point. And they, they're the kind of thing that sometimes you'll find. And once you get to like, if you're, I don't know, in pubs and things like this and in Peckham, um, you kind of quite often like meet people that were part of it and like, you know, oh, I wrote a poem once and blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out that you're meeting one of those poets and things. So so there's yeah quite a few people that are involved in it are kind of still around. And, and like all kind of political works, they ended up in different networks. So um, quite a few um you know, like uh, people that were in the Young Communist League and stuff like that at that time, um, you know, that still work in that were, were part of it. But yeah, there's quite a lot online that you can kind of digitize, that I digitized. Um, there was a question um, for you, Helen, from Mary Ellen. How would a regular person, um, so I guess, um, you know, someone who's not been trained, recognize it if a person is being trafficked? If you, you've got maybe um, some kind of, um, clear kind of like checklisty things yeah it's it's difficult because it's such a hidden crime mm. so um it kind of depends on the circumstance if it's somebody that you know and they become very withdrawn or their behavior changes or they um suddenly are wearing very different clothing or have with with um I suppose a good example is with young people who are perhaps being forced to run county lines which is criminal exploitation maybe they'll have uh two phones and they'll be really good phones or have 
you know, expensive new trainers or they'll be carrying backpacks and traveling around the country a lot. Um, but for your, for your everyday person, I suppose the way you can kind of do your bit, if that's kind of what this question is, um, is just by doing your due diligence when you're going to um, shops like what I highlighted earlier. So nail bars and car washes and looking at how the people who are running those businesses, what's their mannerism? Are they guarding the door? Do people look like they're unable to leave? Um, how do you come through? Are you let through or do you have to kind of um, negotiate your way through? Um, and the general rule of thumb is if, if a service that you're purchasing is cheap, someone else is paying the price. Um, if your car wash costs you five pounds, who's paying, who's paying for the labor of that? Not you. Thanks, Helen. And thanks, Susan. You've, you've shared a link there to uh, uh, quite a kind of a local response to that too, which is which is really helpful. Yeah, there's some really good pointers on the Hestia website. You can have a look. There's some really good research reports. The Underground Lives research report is really brilliant if you want to have a read. It's quite a long one, but it's really interesting and highlights a lot of the journeys and um, yeah, exploitation that occurs in the UK as well. Thanks, Helen. And um, so we're going to finish up here, but I know that Veronica, you um, wanted to just mention because you've got a fundraising effort at the moment. Yeah, that was like the whole thing that I was meant to. <laughs> <laughs> I was meant to say. Um, so uh, the Nanny Solidarity Network, which I mentioned earlier, we're like a grassroots mutual aid network. We're run by and for migrant nannies. Um, and we provide lots of different things. We run events, uh, we run community spaces, we do uh, written resources. So at the moment we're producing a handbook, which will be the first uh, written resource for nannies in the UK that will give them advice on things like anti-raids training, what, what they're able to charge, what their rights are. Um, but probably the biggest thing that we do and the, what we started by doing was we run a hardship fund and we provide emergency housing. Um, so we started in the first lockdown as a hardship fund and we raised about uh, 11,000 about um, hardship payments of around 200 pounds to nannies across the country who had been thrown out of work or had been made homeless. A lot of people like had families flee to second homes and if there were au pairs, they had nowhere to stay. Yeah. Um, and even for people who are here with all the right papers, like I am, I'm not entitled to public funds. So for people who lost their jobs and had migrated here, undocumented or documented, um, they really fell through the cracks. So um, we still run a hardship fund. The majority of our money now goes to emergency housing because it just seems to be where the demand is. Um, often we'll also set people up with food banks. Um, we will set people up with food for the day. We'll help them collect their clothes. We'll go get their possessions from employers if, if their employees have been abusive and they're afraid to go back. Um, but all that requires um, donations so that we can help pay for hostels and other things like that. So I'm going to put a link in the chat if anyone wants to date. Our website, should, we have a brand new website coming up next week. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not ready right now, so it's like a Wix homepage. But we, if you want to check back next week, it will be very like fun and shiny. Um, and yeah, if you have any questions, um, please let me know. I also I put a link in there to um, I, I just wrote an article for a, a magazine called Dope Mag, a, a bit more about um, specifically what nannies and au pairs in the UK are facing at the moment and around coronavirus. So yeah, 
that's all. Thank you. Thanks, Veronica. And thank you to all the speakers. It's wonderful. Every time we do this kind of event, it's always amazes me that we can kind of make this quite intimate space online for, you know, an hour and a half. Um, and it's really nice to kind of share that. And hopefully um, we'll kind of raise more awareness of this kind of work and, and the things that you were spoken about because it'll be recorded and so we'll get future views too. So thank you so much to everyone. And I hope you have a nice rest of your evening. Thank you so much, Amy, for organising this. It's been such an interesting evening and it's so great to come in and have five totally different speakers about totally different subjects. It's been, yeah, really fascinating. So thank you so much for organising it. Thanks. And thanks as well from me. It's been, it was a good event. And thanks to all the speakers for sharing the same platform with me. Have a lovely evening. Thanks, Susan, and lovely to meet you. <laughs> yes, and thanks to everyone speaking and to you, Amy, for organising. It's just been a, a phenomenal evening and just so interesting on so many levels. Um, just loads of inspiration flying around. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Cool. Thank thanks you so everyone. much. See you later.